Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 in a Bible study I've entitled, It's All Used of God. So you know, the timing of God is perfect. It's always perfect. God is never late. He's never early. He's always on time. And you think the life that you now live in the time in which you live, in the place that you live, is all by design, by divine design. And it's amazing because we were born when we were born. We didn't have any say in our birth or even in our lives. God ordained where we were, where we grew up, uh, where we moved to. I know some of you grew up in one singular place and then others moved from place to place, perhaps because of the military or other situations. But you grew up where you grew up. You learned what you learned so that God could use you today, all for the moment. And knowing this and believing this truly changes our perspective. And one of the perspectives that is important to come back to time and time again is that yes, God is using all of it in my life. Not just some of it, but all of it. Or another way of saying is that nothing in my life or yours is wasted by God. Nothing in your life is missed by God. It's all put together for His sovereign purposes, that He has it under control, that my life has meaning and direction and an aim. As we learn, you can jot it down in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. It says, The Lord gave me a message, he said. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my spokesman to the world. Isn't that amazing? God already doing a work. Before you were in the womb, in God's foreknowledge, he knew what he was going to do with your life. This can be great comfort for anyone listening right now that's not quite sure what God's doing in their life right now, in the moment, where you stand back, you assess your life, you measure it by some expectations, maybe measure it by a friend, measure it by Instagram, and you've, you've come to the conclusion that your life doesn't measure up. And you wonder, what is God doing? That's great for Jeremiah. It's even great for Daniel. But as we study through the life of Daniel, we always come, when we open the Bible, we come to face to face of the difficulties that everybody faces. And Daniel, although his, his true story, we, we usually get the highlights, today we're introduced to a low light in his life. He was literally kidnapped or taken captive by an invading country. And one day, he was living with great promise, raised in a godly home, and the next day, he's being brainwashed by the culture and, in this case, the government and the leadership. Remember, Daniel's a book about a man and his ministry, the purity of his life, 
the prophecy through his life and how important prophecy is in giving us insight of the faithfulness of God, that his word always comes to pass. So check this out, verse 1 in chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So mark that word in verse 1, besieged. Nebuchadnezzar actually came into Judah three different times. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, becoming the king of the known world, he takes the country, the people of Judah, three times. The first time in around 606 B.C., next in 597, and then finally in 586. And it was on the last invasion by Nebuchadnezzar that he completely destroys Jerusalem, burning it to the ground with fire. Now as the ruler of the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar was powerful and his empire was growing. And it was in the third year, 606 BC, that Nebuchadnezzar comes to town. Notice in verse 2, mark these phrases. And the Lord gave, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, little g. He brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now notice verse 9. We'll jump ahead for a moment. Now God had brought Daniel. So the Lord gave and God had brought Daniel. And notice verse 17 in chapter 1. And these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We approach the captivity with great sorrow and great difficulty. If we were watching it all unfold, the judgment of God is finally coming upon the house of Judah, the evil of the kings and the leadership there, just as God had predicted, just as he said would come to pass, it's now coming to pass. But you know as well as I do, when the judgment of God falls, innocent people suffer. Now, for us in the New Covenant, when we experience the consequences of sin, innocent people suffer. Now, of course, you and I suffer the consequences of our own sin. We're suffering because of our own bad decisions. And yet the people around us, they suffer too. So here you have, in relationship to the bad leadership, you have innocent people suffering as they now are taken into captivity. However, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, we can't forget that God is very much involved in what transpires in our lives. And for this captivity in Judah, God is very much involved. The judging of the nation for their idolatry, their oppression of the poor, their lack of dependence upon him, their lack of pure worship, and it's the prediction, it's the fulfillment precisely of the prophecy in Isaiah 39 and Jeremiah 21 and 25, if you're taking notes. And yet behind the scenes, behind the scenes, God has a young man. His name is Daniel. A man that's going to be greatly used. A man that's going to be a light to the nation of Israel. A man that 
was so greatly used that we're studying his life and being encouraged by Daniel today. And I have to wonder, what is going on behind the scenes in your life of what God is going to use in your life to those around you? There you are in captivity and in bondage, suffering the consequences of your sin, perhaps dealing with the realities of bad decisions or difficulties that are unexplained. But there are always two sides to the unfolding picture in our lives. There's the human side, and then there's the divine side. The human side for Daniel is this captivity was horrible and horrific and difficult to endure. Nebuchadnezzar conquering the world with an iron fist was devastating and difficult for all that he came came across. Seeing this apart from God, we might come to the conclusion, or he might come to the conclusion, look how great I am, look how powerful I am, look how in control I am. And he seems to be getting away with literally murder. However, from the divine perspective, he's just a pawn in the hands of a sovereign God. He's a tool of God. In Proverbs, let me show you. Hold your place in Daniel. Would you turn over to Proverbs chapter 21 with me? Proverbs 21. We need to remember both sides. Both sides, the human and the divine. We can't help but see the human side because we live in flesh and bone bodies. And we live in the emotion of the moment. And we live with the feelings and the anxieties and the concerns and the wonderings and and the hopelessness and the difficulties of life. We can't help but see the human side because we live it, we feel it, we breathe the human side. But if we only focus on the human side of things, then we're going to be greatly discouraged, overcome by our emotions, and blinded to the spiritual realities in our lives. And who really wants to live like that? Anybody? Not an amen in the house, which is good. And one no. Two no's. Nobody wants to live like that. And yet we find ourselves stuck in the human realm so often. We find ourselves stuck in focusing on our circumstances and maybe even being blinded by our circumstances. If we were to meet Nebuchadnezzar and he was to roll through Aurora and take it captive and take us all back to Babylon, we'd be feeling it too. We'd be feeling the weight of all that we've lost. We'd be feeling the weight of all of what what hope is our future. We'd be feeling the weight of all the cries, all the screams, all, all the death, all the difficulty. We'd be overwhelmed by it. When we read through the scriptures, we, we remember that the people experiencing these things were human beings like you and me. The reality of their emotions or the reality of your emotions. The circumstances might be different. The difficulties we face are, ha- have different nuances to them, but the responses are the same. Now, if we only stuck on the human side, then we'd be a little discouraged by Nebuchadnezzar, but there's also a divine side. And notice in Proverbs chapter 21, in verse 1, in Proverbs 21, 1, it says, the king's heart, and in this case, the king would be Nebuchadnezzar, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And those of you that have read ahead in Daniel, you know that there is coming an example 
in Nebuchadnezzar's life of where his heart is turned wherever God wants it. In the New Living Translation, it says in verse 1, the king's heart's like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. And there are always two sides to the divine story, to the biblical story, but let me just say there's always two sides to your story and mine. Always. There's the human and there's the divine. Many times when we're in trouble, we're prone to blame it on the devil or blame it on spiritual warfare. Could be, possibly, the demonic realm. Could be a loss of spiritual warfare. But in what you're facing right now, in the time that you're facing it, in the way that you're facing it, could God be involved? The answer to that is, of course. God is using it. God is using the situations, the pain, the problems caused by our own mistakes, caused by other people's mistakes, our own mishaps, our own sin. There is even pain in the Bible in some circumstances. There's even pain described in the Bible that is described as disciplining pain or more commonly we'd refer to it as God's chastening difficulties that are used to chasten and train us in the way that we should go. And so we see here that there's a demonic element in the life of Daniel, against Daniel, but there's also God. They're both working. The devil wants the nation of Israel destroyed, but God is more powerful and is using Daniel and the situation to strengthen the nation of Israel. Both things, have happen- both things are happening. So between the, the demonic, fleshly, difficult realm of the world, uh, the flesh, the devil, Nebuchadnezzar, and the powerful, sovereign hand of God that's allowing these things, molding and shaping the things around our lives to bring us to an end that he desires between the devil and God who wins. God always wins. He always wins. And our choice to willingly submit to the will of God is always wise to come sooner than later. Because some of us, we, you, know, you, you know how they say you can come the easy way or you can come the sort of easy way. No, no, the hard way. And some of us just choose the hard way. We end up at the same place. But other people seem to get there faster than we do. And then we wonder what's going on. And then God begins to reveal, look, you've been resisting. You've been resisting my sovereignty, Ed. You've been resisting the work I want to do in your life, Ed. You've been resisting that shaping and that molding. And, and I, I just, you know, it's almost like God sometimes, I just, I'm just watching it unfold for that right time where I can begin to shape and mold and you become that moldable clay where you trust me again with your life. You see, God is sovereign. Sovereign, that means he is in perfect, powerful control. Or you could say in ultimate powerful control. And he works all things together for the good. He works all things together for his glory and our good. To deepening our faith and love and trust in him. And no matter what comes into my life, the best choice is to trust him moment by moment, knowing that he's on my side. And it's interesting, I, I'm not one of them, but it's interesting to watch a craftsman at work. 
someone that's really good at what they do, someone that can bring literally, you know, nothing or just a lump of something and make it super beautiful, creative in drawing, creative in pottery, creative in woodworking, just simply creative, that are gifted in making things with their hands. It, it could be, you know, woodworking, it could be fixing elect, it could be fixing a car. Some of you are just so genius when it comes to a car. I, I just, I get so jealous of you. I don't even sometimes, I, I, I can mess things up trying to change the oil. I'll strip the thing, go up trying to put it back in and it just ruin the whole thing. And you change the oil and watch TV at the same time. You're so gifted. Extremely good at what you do. Being around men and women that craft are good chefs or know how to make coffee just the right way or, you know, you, you in your mind, you know where you're headed. You have the end product in mind. You're good at what you do because you spend a lot of time doing what you do. And one of the things that we don't experience in how you became so good are all the mistakes that you made. You're only good because you've made mistakes. Now some of you are going, Ed, you don't know, I haven't made that many mistakes. Well, you made enough. And you learn from them. When a sculptor takes a piece of wood and creates something beautiful out of it, he takes the chisel, he takes the hammer, and he begins to beat on it and bang on it and chip away. And as he works, it makes the difference between firewood and a masterpiece of the tools that are in his hand, in her hand. We think of the work of God in our lives as he's chipping away as he's carving out. And I suspect if the wood could speak, we'd be very much like the wood if they can speak and say, why God? I don't even need that. I don't even want that. I'll just be half finished. That's fine with me. I don't want any more. It's too painful and it's too hard. But guys, he's at work and he's the master craftsman. The difference of our submission to him is the difference between firewood and a masterpiece. I mean, where are you today exactly? Are you in a job that you just can't stand? Are you in a relationship that's struggling? Are you listening to this from a hospital room or a jail cell somewhere? Maybe on the side of the road in a car that's broken down? Could God be using it? Could God be using the difficulties that you're in right now as a piece, as a part of the puzzle of your life that although you don't see the outside, you don't have the box of the puzzle, you don't know how all the pieces are going to work, the Lord is revealing himself in deeper ways. And our resistance and our unwillingness to yield. Remember, James told us that wisdom from above is a willingness to yield, not a rebellious resistance. That's not wisdom from above. Any parent would tell you this, any grandparent would tell you this, that what's desired in a child that's being disciplined is a willingness to yield. And that if our kids are resistance and fighting, then it's only delaying the process and making it worse. Because in a very real way, the chastening and the training of the parent will prevail. It's only a matter of how long will it take for the kid to, will, to willingly yield 
and learn and submit to the process. We can ask the question, could God be using it? And the answer is yes, God is using it. There's an old song we've sang many years ago. On occasion, Pastor, you don't bring it out here. I'm sure Pastor Jason will too. But the song goes, my hope is in you, Lord. My strength is in you, Lord. My life is in you, Lord. It's in you. It's in you. And it would need to be a song that Daniel sings now as he's taken captive. We read the scriptures in a matter of seconds. We read these passages in the first few verses literally in a matter of seconds. But this was a life-changing, life-altering moment in the life of Daniel, let alone the nation of Judah, let alone Daniel's friends. In a moment's time, life was forever altered. And now, in the rest of the book of Daniel, with this backdrop, in the rest of the book and our study in Daniel will be the unfolding picture of Daniel's response to life-altering pain. Given to us as an example and as an encouragement. In Psalm 38, verse 15, it says, For I'm waiting for you, O Lord. You must answer me, O Lord, my God. So Jehoiakim is given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And he took some of the articles of the house of God into his land. Pick up with me in verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and of whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So the instruction was clear. Bring me the best and the brightest. Bring me the cream of the crop the ones that have the greatest potential. Because in conquering the land and taking captive these young men, Nebuchadnezzar was accomplishing a couple of things. Number one, these young men would be trophies of Babylon's conquest. They would be forever a reminder that Nebuchadnezzar was king, in his mind, capital K. Secondly, they would become ambassadors as they returned to their homeland with their Babylonian culture and traditions with them. Thirdly, it would keep the nobles in Jerusalem under control as the threat of having their children taken away would always be before them. They'd be a reminder, sort of like crucifixion for the Romans was, don't mess with Rome, having these bright young men trained and serving Nebuchadnezzar would serve as a warning, don't you mess with Nebuchadnezzar or your kids might be next. The devil always likes to intimidate and threaten. I don't know if you've ever been personally threatened. I mean, literally in a personal way. Maybe your life was threatened or someone threatened to do something to you, but it can shake a person. 
it can shake a person where you are having now to process whether this threat is true, what's going to happen, and it's an it's a undermining of, of our faith. But the devil is always threatening. He's always trying to bring out these threats to undermine our faith. While, at the same time, he's also wanting to undermine our understanding of who God is. You see, the goal for these young men, the goal was to take Israel's best and train, turning them into trained and learned Babylonians. It was part of the brainwashing process. The world in which we live and the culture in which we live has a belief system that is contrary to the Bible. The world and culture, and I don't just mean Western culture. When I use the world, I, I mean culturally, but also globally, is an anti-God, or using the word of the scriptures, an anti-Christ philosophy. Anti can mean a couple of different things. Number one, when you think of anti-Christ, it can refer to as against Christ. And some things that are taught in culture are just immediately up against the teachings of Jesus Christ. I mean, just in, it, in the face of righteousness. I received a note this week of, of, a, of a young person in middle school that just felt like that they were dumb for believing in God because of the peer pressure that they're going through. Why? Because the culture comes against God. Now, you and I live in this culture. We breathe in this culture, we work in this culture, we shop in this culture. The culture has its effect on us as well. But it's not just against, the second meaning of anti is in place of. So when you think of antichrist, whether you're thinking of the antichrist who's to come in the book of Revelation coming up uh, as in the near future as we're living in the end times. But remember John said in 1 John that there are also many antichrists the spirit of Antichrist, this sense of, man, the things that are being thrown at us are wanting to come in the face of our faith and then replace it and displace it. And so there's peer pressure. It's not just the kids aren't just feeling peer pressure. Peer pressure goes on into adulthood. There's the pressure of of having to accommodate into our culture and having to learn. You've got to learn how to work in this culture, how to navigate in this culture, how to use the money of this culture. But for these young men, you can see in verse 6, he has friends. It says, among these were the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. So these are the four men that are focused on in the book of Daniel, there are at least three things that the culture wanted to do to them that the culture wants to do to us. Number one, they wanted them to think differently. To think differently. So they were going to teach them the language and the idolatry of the Chaldeans. They wanted them to think. That's what it says in the end of verse four. They might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. They wanted to teach them the language because the fastest way to assimilate into a culture is to learn the language. As we 
prepare and send missionaries out into other cultures with other languages, a large part of their time is spent learning the language. And they learn it faster, in many cases, by just jumping in and studying it, speaking it, and living in it at the same time. So number one, they wanted them to think differently. Number two, they wanted them to worship differently. They wanted them to worship differently. You notice, and by the time they get to, at the end of verse four, it wasn't just language, but literature. And now literature wasn't just the history of the country, but it was also the worship of the country. And so they wanted them to have a different worship mentality. We'll get to that in a second because it will jump in as their names get changed. But before we get there, let me come back to number two because I went out of order. Secondly, they want them to live differently. So not only think differently, but secondly, they want them to live differently. Third, they want them to worship differently as we'll get to that in a moment. Hold your places here. Go over to Romans chapter 12 because the same three things are happening to you and to me. The the world system that we live in wants you to think differently. And the phraseology that is very popular today to help you to understand this is the phrase worldview. Worldview. Don't be scared by that because a worldview is simply how you view the world. It's very similar to me and this pair of glasses. Because when my glasses are not on my head, I cannot see you. You're all very good looking right now. (laughs) Because I can't see you. Uh, The lens of my life is off of my head and I cannot see you clearly. I can only make out shapes. By the end of the day, my, my eyes are very blurry and I can only make out shapes and I can tell that there are people here and I can see some of the LED lights in the room, but that's about it. But when I place my glasses on my, whoa, you're even better, than I, better looking than I thought. When I place my glasses on, I have a glasses view of this room. I see everything through my glasses. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we have been taught to see everything through the lens of the scriptures. We call that a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview. We, we tend to take everything that we see, and this is a habit we want to develop, everything that we see, everything that we hear, everything we experience, and like the Bible says, test all things, hold fast to what is good. And we study the Bible for the sake of developing a biblical worldview because the Bible gives to us God's heart on the matter, and we want God's heart. But we live in a culture that is, we we spend way more time in this culture, we spend way more time with the thoughts and teachings of this culture, whether we acknowledge or not. So the culture that you're in is actually a secular worldview. A secular worldview diminishes or decimates God or a view of God and puts on another pair of glasses that you see everything. Well, actually, you can even develop the worldview with another word, secular humanism. Secular humanism. 
Secular speaks of the world without God. Humanism speaks of you're the center of the universe. And that's how you have been trained. If you grew up in this world, you grew up in the public school system, you're educated in the public school system at every level, all the way into getting your doctorate. This is the worldview that was used, you know, depending on what, maybe you went to a Christian university perhaps, or like in our kiddos in our school here, we teach them ABCs with a biblical worldview. We explain things to them with a biblical worldview. If they skin their knee on the, on the playground, we pray for them and remind them that God is the healer and that he's going to heal. And he created the body. Like there is a biblical worldview in pockets of this world, like we are experiencing one right now. But that's a pocket within the overall secular humanistic worldview. And the doctrine... Doctrine is another word for teaching. While our doctrines are derived from God's word, the doctrine of the secular humanistic worldview is humanistic evolution that displaces the word of God and any need for God. So remember, especially if you guys wear glasses, you realize if you choose to see everything through the lens of the word of God, you'll see purpose and meaning in what you face. You'll receive hope when there's hopelessness. But what they wanted them to do is to not only think differently, they wanted them to live differently. But notice, I asked you to go to Romans chapter 12 and pick up with me, if you would, please, in verse 1. He says... I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You could say Romans 12.1 is like putting on the biblical glasses. Hey, present yourself to God. You're facing a trial today? Present yourself to God. You're worried today? Present yourself to God. You are having difficulty? Don't like where you're at? Don't like the state of your life? Don't like? Hey, present yourself to God. It's a reasonable service. It's holy and acceptable. And that's going to lead to verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what does your Bible say? Minds. So Nebuchadnezzar's astute here. The, the Chaldeans were very, very intelligent. And they're going right after the mind. What do you think they're going after in your kids' lives? The mind. What do you think they're going after in your life? The mind. Don't be conformed to this world. Be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. How do you know the will of God? How do you know what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? Well, you put on your biblical glasses and you live with a biblical worldview, testing all things, holding fast to what is good, presenting yourself to him. You are on the way just in your time today, whether you're listening to this uh, on uh, social media somewhere, or you're here in the room, or you're downstairs, one or the overflow, you are on the way. But it's not a one-time event. Like, it's not 90 minutes of church attendance, and that's going to renew my mind. Because some of you, as soon as you get into the car and turn on the radio, as soon as you turn the key, as soon as you push the button for your car, I, I'm, it's even hard for me to say this, but country music is going to play in your car. And it's going to ruin your mind. What are you laughing at? Or you might be going to the market 
and your eyes see something and it provokes a temptation or you might be going to work and you work in such a, an environment that's very difficult for you to maintain your faith and to trust in the Lord and, and it just stirs up and, and you're going to walk out the doors, you're going to face something, you're going to pick up your kids, you're going to face something and, and it's a challenge of what will you believe because here's the truth. What you and I believe dictates our behavior. That's why if you give some time to watch somebody's behavior, you can walk up to them and tell them, I know what you believe. You go, yeah, you don't know about me. I've been watching you for a while and I can see that you say one thing with your mouth, but your actions tell me you believe something differently. And I know for certain that most, if not all of you, have spotted a hypocrite at one time in your life. Yes, no? How did you do that? Their behavior betrayed their words. Or their words betrayed their behavior. Think differently. Secondly, live differently. How did they do that? Notice, coming back to Daniel, they wanted them to live differently by eating different. Now they get to eat the best of the best of the king's delicacies, verse 5. And the delicacies, we, we aren't for sure what... We don't, we don't know for sure. We have some history that we looked up uh, that what would be at a, at a Medo-Persian table, things like this. This is what would be set before the king um, at the Medo-Persian table. Every day, 400 sheep, 300 lambs, 100 oxen, 30 horses, 30 deer, 400 geese, 300 pigeons, yuck, 600 small fowl, 750 gallons of the finest wine, 75 gallons of new milk, 75 gallons of sour milk, and 22,000 loaves of bread. This would feed the king, his servants, his family, his harem, his guests, the wise men, etc. A lot of food, a lot of luxury. But besides getting them to eat, don't forget Daniel and his friends' culture. Don't forget the biblical worldview of their day were the Levitical laws and the restrictions on what to eat. Eating is important in God's sight. Today, eating isn't important for our righteousness. It's important because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But for Daniel and his friends, the way they ate was an act of worship. And there were restrictions. They grew up and was trained, were trained with restrictions on what they... So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He's going to train their mind. Three years of this, train their mind... But now he also wants them to eat contrary to the Levitical law. He wants to undo the way they were raised. As many kids, when they graduate high school, the first course, the first class in college, the first day, some professors is going to call out the Christian in the class and make fun of them in front of everyone else, going right after their fate from the get-go. Right, and automatically, they're just in a new environment, a whole new world. It's so difficult for them, they go right after and undermine their entire upbringing. But it wasn't just that. You can't miss this. If the Medo-Persians at their table had 750 gallons of the finest wine, notice what he wanted in verse 5. He wanted them to drink the wine that he drank. They wanted him to live differently completely. And I believe this was an insight of he wanted these teenagers drunk, which would make them easier to control and train. 
to get them under the influence and out of control a little. The worst thing I did when I was 12 years old to that point in time was take my first drink of alcohol. 12 years old. It wasn't much. As a matter of fact, what we found was simply a can of beer. And we split it three ways between the three of us because we thought we were so bold and so brave. I really don't know what happened to the two other guys. I didn't really follow their life much after that as we went off to junior high school at a different school and then we went off to high school in a whole different school. I don't know what happened to them, but I know what happened to me. That one drink flipped a switch inside of me that didn't get turned off until I was 23. And it was not turned off by my personal choice. And it wasn't turned off by being in jail. And it wasn't turned off by, by um, stopping at one or you know, it went off into drugs and it was continuing to escalate. It was only turned off by the power and the work of the Jesus Christ in my life. And so I don't know, I don't know what your story is. And some, some people will, will call as we receive the call on the radio today. What do you, what's your opinion about marijuana? What's your opinion? I'll tell you. I'll tell you that every day, every time you ask, stay away from it. I don't care what's legal. I don't care now that you can get some magic mushrooms. They will destroy your life. Mark my words. Write it down. Put it in the back of your Bible and say, Ed's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a legalist. He doesn't care. What about freedoms? Just write it down and put it in the back of your Bible. And when you're in trouble, call me because I'll go visit you and I'll encourage you in the Lord. And I'll come alongside of you and say, hey, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. You didn't heed my warnings, but you can today. The resistance of Daniel and his friends would be taken to an all-time low if they were drunk. And it was Nebuchadnezzar's goal to get them drunk. If you haven't noticed, in our culture, in our society, that's the goal. Get the, get the public to be out of their senses. Take the public and give them what they ask for. Remember in the Psalms it says that God gave them their request but sent leanness to their souls. And there's just some things that we want that are not good for us. There's just some things that we desire that can be used against us. There's just some things, substances, that can take control of our body and our minds. And for some, and I don't know who, and this is what I tell parents. It says, well, you know, it's okay for me. I can handle it. And, and it's fine with me, Ed. You don't understand. And, and again, you know, it's not, it's not my life you're living. It's, I have already lived my life and I made enough mistakes. It's your life you're living. But I always like to ask, which one of your kids can't handle alcohol? Oh, Ed, how could you say that? They're just little kids. I'm like, but following your example, they're going to walk right behind you. And the example you give them how do you know what your kids can handle and what they can't? Wouldn't it be better to present them to the world as adults, clean, pure, righteous, submitted to the Lord, following him, as strong as they can be in a culture that's only getting darker and only becoming more wicked and evil? Don't miss this. We're talking thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago, alcohol was used as a tool to take advantage of kids teenagers, 
And the world just hasn't, when you think of it stepping away from alcohol for a minute, the world has a tendency to have an intoxicating effect on Christians. For years now, the church has adapted itself in the desire that somehow the church can fit in the world. Somehow we'll become acceptable and, and we'll just look like the world, sound like the world. But what that's done is brought compromise and destruction into people's lives. And it's done the exact opposite. The church has lost its effectiveness. It's lost its saltiness. As Jesus would say in Luke chapter 14, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how are you going to make it salty again? And for the church, the only way to make it salty again is to repent and to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and ask for his mercy upon us. Jesus said, flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the fertilizer. It's just thrown away. So they want to think differently. Secondly, they want to live differently, including getting them to be drunk with wine. And thirdly, the last one, is they wanted them to worship differently. And they did that in verse 6. It says, now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And so they really, you can see the end goal. They wanted to change their identity. And they were so bold to go, well, you can't even, you're not even going to have your Hebrew names. We're going to give you new names. Daniel, if you're taking notes, His name means God is judge or God is my judge. But this new name, Belteshazzar, refers to the prince of Bel, B-E-L, the highest god of the Babylonian deities. Literally, Belteshazzar means may Bel protect my life. So he goes, they want him, instead of every time his name was repeated, Daniel, that God is my judge, now they wanted him to trust Bel, B-E-L, to protect his life. And instead of the Lord's protection, And Daniel's accountability to God, they wanted him to appeal to a pagan God for protection. Hananiah, his name means the Lord is gracious. A great name reminding him of the loving kindness of God. But Shadrach refers to Rach, the sun god, R-A-C-H. It means to be illumined by the sun god. Instead of experiencing the wonderful grace and kindness of God, he was directed to think that a pagan god would somehow brighten his life. Mishael, His name means who is what God is. Who is what God is. It's a lot like Michael, who is like God. It reminded him to live like God and to have a godly lifestyle and character. So what do they change it to? Meshach, which refers to their pagan god, Aku, which means who is what Aku is. I mean, they go right after it. Azariah means the Lord helps. His name was changed to Abednego which probably means a servant of Nebo, changing a glorious godly name into one that reminds the person of another pagan deity. And I don't think the devil's changed his tactics all that much. There's a real parallel here as you and I live in enemy territory, that the system that we live in wants to change the way you think and live. And it's happening all around us. Let me give you a few things that I think summarizing this to watch out for, goals that I see happening in my own life, and as a pastor and a fellow believer, I see it happening in, in, in the strongest of believers, 
in the weakest of believers. But here are some of the goals, some of the targets where the arrows of the enemy are shot in your life every day. Ready? Number one, the devil wants you afraid. He wants us afraid. He wants us so timid at the thought of telling someone about Jesus, taking a stand. He wants us timid to wholly devote our lives to God. He, he wants us afraid of what will happen, what will be the outcome. He wants us, instead of walking by confident faith, he wants us to be cautiously afraid. He wants us to be more pragmatic in our approach. Pragmatism is simply what we're told not to do in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. You could say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Here's the Ed Taylor paraphrase. And don't approach God pragmatically. And another way of thinking of pragmatism is, don't try to figure God out. Do what he says by faith. He wants you afraid. He wants me afraid. Number two, he wants you intoxicated. He wants me intoxicated. Literally under the influence of alcohol or some substance. Literally, I believe, the Bible prohibits it. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine but because it will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. Don't be filled with wine because it will ruin your life. In the New King James it says, in which is dissipation. Well, that's what dissipation means. It will wreck your life. It will wreck your life. And I would just ask you, at other times I would say, test me. Don't test me on this one. Let my wreck life be a testimony to you. You know, you can learn by example. It doesn't have to be your example. You can be my example. Don't waste the most important years of your life being under the influence. And now it's, it's, a, it's an all-out assault when it comes alcohol, marijuana, now magic mushrooms. Like seriously, why? What benefit will that bring? But also practically, he wants us intoxicated with the world under the influence of a system. It's trinkets, it's treasures, it's entertainment. He wants us to pass our time not engaged by faith and trusting God, but he wants us literally to pass our time instead of invest our time in what's important and what's eternal. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where they can be eaten by moths and get rusty and where thieves break in and steal. But store your treasures in heaven where they will never become moth-eaten or rusty and where they'll be safe from thieves. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart and your thoughts will be also. Investing our lives in what's eternal. Jesus is speaking of our finances and our resources, but it's much broader than that. It's so much more. It's our very lives, that our lives are invested in abiding. See, when we're abiding in Him, that's where our treasure is. We treasure our lives more than our money. And when you invest your life in abiding in Christ, that's where your heart's going to be. He and you. We and Him and He and us. Afraid, intoxicated. Thirdly, I believe one of the goals of the devil today is that he wants us confused. He wants us confused. He doesn't want you to know what you believe. 
He doesn't want you to understand the character and nature of God. He, he wants you to approach the book, the Bible, as a book that's not understandable. He wants you confused when you turn to this page and that. He wants to break. Now, I would even add along confusion, one of the goals that, or one of the tools he uses in confusion is dividing you from the men and women that God's put in your life to help you understand the Word of God. Instead, running to someone that's going to give you bad advice or just coddle you or, oh, it's going to be okay. Oh, yeah, you know, I was hurt too. And so, we'll, or whatever it is, like to get you away, like, yeah, there is not a pastor on earth that I can trust. That's just going to make you confused. There's got to be one pastor on the planet earth that you can trust. If that's you and you're feeling like, no, I don't think I could trust anyone, then make it your life aim to find that one guy you could trust instead of just giving up on God altogether and forgetting. You know, I, I, I choose the role of pastor, not for, not for me, but for us. Because if the devil can get you not trusting your teachers, then you won't learn. And you'll make it up as you go. And you go, what, but, you know, he hurt me. He made a mistake. Well, then go make it right. Matthew chapter 18. Don't tell everybody about it. Go talk to them. Or remember as you're praying for them and your ministry, like remember that you've hurt a few people along the way too. Haven't we all? Pain is a part of the process. And living in this world, in the church, outside of the church, you will have scars. I don't want to see them, but you will have scars. Some guys just like to live by their scars. <laughs> no, put on long sleeves. We're all right. Let's look to the scars that heal us in the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. Those are real scars that help to minimize the pain of our own scars. That you know, they're real too. But you don't want to live your life upset and mad and confused and divided the rest of your life. You'll be miserable. You'll be more miserable than you are right now. The Bible says in Hebrews, as we'll get there soon enough, that bitterness defiles everyone around you. It ruins people. And so the devil wants you confused. He's like Nebuchadnezzar. Are you sure? Are you sure? Or as we, you're, that's just dumb. You believe in God? That's just dumb. And getting you on the wrong day, <laughs> you're like, maybe I am dumb. And the same old lie, the same old lie, has God said? Has God really said? Did God really say that? And with that question, you begin to question God. Number one, he wants you afraid. Number two, intoxicated. Number three, confused. Number four, divided. He knows. He knows that a house divided can't stand. Number five, he wants us doubting. He wants us doubting. The first sin began with the words spoken in the ears of Eve. Did God really say and so he wants us to doubt and not live with the confidence that God has given to us by faith. And then number six, finally, he wants you compromised. He wants us compromised because then it takes away any kind of witness that we have. So there's no strong relationship with Jesus and we just have a little bit of Jesus, but we live like the world. And what does the strength of the church really have when they're afraid, intoxicated, confused, divided, doubting, and full of compromise. 
Well, for those that name the name of Jesus Christ that purposely live in this realm, they have a tendency to look worse than those in the world. And that's where Daniel is. This is what he's up against. Keep that in mind as we get into the next section. This is what Daniel's up against. The application is clear for us, but don't forget, Daniel is facing these very temptations at about the age of 15 or 16. We don't know for sure, but about 15 or 16 is where he and his friends are in this. 15 or 16 with great potential, super smart, great, look, great good looking, able to learn. But as we'll also see, they came to Babylon. They came to Babylon with a depth of spiritual growth. You don't have to be in your 20s or 30s to have a strong faith in Jesus Christ. You can have it as a five-year-old, as an eight-year-old, as a 12-year-old, as a 15-year-old, as an 18-year-old. God establishes you as you turn to him. And you can have it as a 50-year-old and an 80-year-old. As a matter of fact, the older we get, the stronger, hopefully, who we become in our faith as we learn from our mistakes. Daniel remained committed and unwavering. And he makes a commitment that we're going to look at next time. But it's all used by God. Daniel's in the midst of this. This isn't a case study for the year 2019. This is the reality of the demonic warfare between darkness and light, the devil and God, the flesh and the spirit. This is what it looks like. And Daniel's going to be a case study for us of the strength of resolve and the presence of God in a person's life. So Father, thank you for the privilege of, of learning a little bit of Daniel, kind of having our eyes wide open, uh, the, the, the reality of, of putting on the glasses of your word so we can see everything through your word. Even if there are some today, some kids that, that have to bring that back into their homes and minister to their parents. Where they're young people, they're 15 and 16, having to make their own decisions, their own adult decisions. Or for some, that, the, that, that they're in their 20s or 30s or 40s, and some of the things that they're facing are delayed because they didn't make the decision earlier. But now as they've made a decision to resolve, to yield to you, I just know that you're going to affirm that decision. And you're going to strengthen their resolve. And you're going to empower them for the work for which you've called them and the purposes for which you have them. That you would pour out your spirit on us, God, that we would become the men and women that you desire us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.